Where have you got the Colonel now, Milt? Downtown? It's an easy bus ride, isn't it, Harry? You ever ride the buses, Milt? Hardly ever. Well, that's nice. You sit there, look out the window. Gives a man a chance to think. You ought to try it sometime, Milt. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we ultimately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. This is a bit of a departure for us. We have a special episode this time around. We are at the studios of the Austin Film Society and we have a special guest and I will let him introduce himself. Hi there, my name is Lars Nilsson. I'm the lead programmer at Austin Film Society. And uh, I was a little flabbergasted when I was asked to join, but I, I happily did so. And I spent about 15 seconds deciding which movie <laughs> that I would uh, ask to talk about on the show. Well, since we started the show, we've had a short list of people that we wanted to have on for guests, and Lars was always at the top of that list because we love to talk film with him all the time, every chance we get when we go to AFS. And we figured it would be a great opportunity to sit down and have a more in-depth discussion that we could share with our listeners. So we are at episode 35 this time. Let's find out what film Lars has chosen for us. Uh, Well, it's a 1974 TV movie, in fact, a pilot for a TV show called Smile, Jenny, You're Dead. And the TV show is what became Harry O. This pilot film was directed by Jerry Thorpe, written by Howard Rodman, and it stars David Jansen as the title character, Harry O. It also features your favorite, Clue Gulliger, along with Zalman King, the softcore porn king, and Jodie Foster as Liberty Cole, a homeless girl who takes up residence in Harry's boat. Let's talk a little bit about the premise of Harry O. So Harry O is a show, and this is actually the second pilot for it. It didn't quite take the first time. Uh, But it's a show about a cop named Harry Orwell who was shot in the line of duty and he has a bullet irreparably lodged in his back. And so he's on disability and he tends to work as a private detective when he can and help people out. Uh, and And he lives on the beach and it's sort of the basis of the show. It's very much one of the sort of personality shows that you find a lot of in the 70s, like Rockford Files and Macmillan and Wife, let's say, or Columbo, where the detective or the lead's personality is very much tied in with the the actor or actress playing that character. And it's a real way to get a noted or well-liked actor on screen in parts that give him uh, some variety, but also build upon the same character every week. And this second pilot film is all about Harry is asked to help out the daughter of one of his cop friends. She is being menaced, and she's also going through a possible divorce from her husband. I figure we might have a few new listeners this time around, and we wanted to warn everyone ahead of time. We discuss plot points, surprises, twists, resolution in great detail. So if you have not seen the film prior to now, you might want to press pause on the podcast and go watch the show and then come back for the analysis. So, Lars, why did you choose this one for the show? You know, it happened that when you sent me the message asking me if I'd like to do the show, I was watching this. And I watched it five or six years ago or, or more. And I had sort of seen it at Vulcan Video and I picked it up again. And I thought, well, I liked this before. I wonder if I'd still like it. 
And I was watching it again and I was thinking, just as you sent me that, I was thinking, why do I enjoy this? What, what is it about this that I really like? And what is it about these kinds of 70s TV movies or 70s TV episodes that I respond to so much? And Because it's God knows, it's not like I know a lot of people that are really into this kind of stuff. We do a series here at AFS called History of Television, and sometimes we'll show television episodes. And I really will agonize. It's a free show, but I'll often just kind of agonize over my selection of what I'm choosing for this because I, I never really want to bore people or hit people with things that they're not interested in so i have given a little soul searching time on behalf of programming that series the series thinking why i enjoy these so much i do think that a big part of it is acting um, because i'm a big connoisseur of acting in all kinds of movies in good movies and in movies like this movie um, and in bad movies and all kinds of movies i really appreciate performance styles so much in all kinds of movies and i think when you watch these 70s TV shows or TV movies, you'll have a lot of different kinds of actors thrown together. And they will not have been selected with the same kind of care necessarily that, let's say, a director who's making a, an expensive film would spend on it. Just making sure she, he or she just has exactly the right cast. With a television movie, I think a lot of times it's kind of like, oh, well, we've got these people under contract for this show. Um, and you know we've got sort of a package of these people that we can put together. And then this person's available. Um, so you'll have very unusual acting styles thrown together. And I think that's a big part of what I like a, a lot about this. I don't talk to a lot of people about acting very much. I feel like when I'm having these sort of lobby conversations about films, I feel like I spend a lot of time talking about the director and what does the director mean and all of that to the point where I think that well, I do think in a primal sense that like when we talk to if you were to talk to a child, about the movie they just saw. They're talking all about the people that are in it. And they're talking all about the actors. Mm -hmm. And in a way, we kind of, we feel like we've grown up when we stop talking about the actors. We feel like we've grown up when we start talking about the directors and the cinematographers and the writers. And of course, these are all important people. But it doesn't mean that we should get so far away from thinking about the actors. So I, I guess my point is, you've got these actors with incredible styles sometimes. Sometimes people who had done have done more acting than Olivier, you know, throughout the course of their careers. Not at a high level, but people with very interesting styles. And so this episode, it's David Jansen is a huge favorite of mine. And it's all, not because of The Fugitive, which I don't love as a show. That was his big show. But it's for a lot of the TV movies that he did, like Moon of the Wolf, and especially a movie called Fair de Lance, um, where he plays, a, he's on a submarine and there are snakes on the submarine. He has this delivery and it's, it reminds me of the thing that Pauline Kael said about Jeff Bridges one time, where she said, I don't know how he does it. Jeff Bridges will say a line, but, and Pauline Kael would, would say, I don't know how he, I think it was a review of Bad Company, but she was saying, I don't know how he says this line. Like, you can hear it, but if you had to go back and try to replicate it, like a picture with a weird wind-up and a weird pitch, hmm. it's like, how would you, re I don't know, how, I, I saw him do it. I can picture him doing it, but I don't know how he did it. And Jeff Bridges is kind of one of those sort of actors like that where he has this odd delivery sometimes and the way he comes at it and the way he says a phrase seems so natural and you buy it all the way, but you don't know how he did it. And Jansen, for me, is kind of one of those actors. Like, you hear him do it, you can hear it in your mind's ear when you think back on it, but if you had to figure out just exactly how to say a thing like Jansen said it, croak of his voice aside, you wouldn't be able to figure out how he did it in that weird rhythm. And the fact that there's three or four scenes in this with Luke Gulliger, who's another actor who has ex almost exactly the same kind of weird wind-up, the sort of crazy screwball pitch in his 
inflection makes those scenes like worthy of the Library of Congress, I think, <laughs> in the film. And then the rest of the film is is competent and capably put together and directed by Jerry Thorpe, a guy who did a lot of Kung Fu episodes and was um, son of Richard Thorpe, who directed like Jailhouse Rock and a lot of other you know, super commercial Hollywood films, going back to the silent era. Yeah, he's got over 100 credits <laughs> yeah. starting from 1925. Well, in the scene that the two of you did so ably at the beginning, <laughs> when we talk about acting styles, clearly they rehearsed the scene ahead of time. The camera was set up in its particular places. There were different setups taking place. How is it, though, that Clue Gulliger decided to do what he decided to do, and then they committed that to film? How would you say, okay, right here is where I'm going to turn around completely and say this to your back, and then I'm going to walk over here and point over here and then say this out of the side of my mouth? And everybody thought, sure. It's so funny when you say, why does he do what he decided to do? Because, like, I, I don't know. I don't even know if I could describe what he, he does. Like, and, and Jansen, in, a, in an earlier scene, Jansen is talking to Gulliger as Gulliger's like, leaning over the inside of a car, and, and Jansen throws his head to the side wildly, for seemingly no reason, and it, it, it does seem like they're kind of trying to out-quirk each other. Because in the scene you're talking about, Gulliger turns completely around in a 360-degree pan, and it's it's hard to imagine how they got to that. And it almost looks to me like they playfully were trying to sort of one-up one another and throw Play, each other off. Playfully, you think? Yeah, I, I, Maybe? I suspect so. Okay. I suspect so. And, um, Not with malice aforethought. You know, having having maybe this is the time for my Gulliger story, but having met Cool Gulliger, he was the sweetest, nicest guy. Um, I met him at the New Beverly in Los Angeles, where he is a regular. I mean, he just he just goes to movies. He wasn't there for any kind of special event. He was just there watching movies. And I met him there, and I was you know everybody there is used to seeing him because he's a regular. He's there all the time. But I was flipping out a little bit. And I went over to him and I talked to him about Get Christy Love, which is a TV movie, pilot also, and uh, this movie, and I was asking him all, all these questions, <laughs> you know, like, wow, that scene with you and Jansen, <laughs> and all this, and I talked to him specifically about that, and I was just like, going, th- going through, I was like, and then you, and then, you know, you Jansen turns his head, and it's like you're trying to outdo one another, and I said, he was just kind of like, very politely go, I don't remember He didn't that. pull out his diary and flip to that no, date and say, here's no. what I was thinking. As, of course, as anyone who's not a fool would realize, he had no memory of it. He had probably never seen it, you know. He just, it was all in a day's work. I'm sure he went in and did one day on that, on that movie, <laughs> you know. He didn't have any memory of that at all, but... Um, I remembered it for years. I remember that. I probably remember that scene ten years after the last time I ever watched this movie. There's just something about it and about the way that they sort of operate together. But I think Jansen really kind of brings that out because in all of these movies that I've watched with Jansen, there's always really weird and interesting sort of interpersonal acting tension with it in, in at least one scene in the movie. Um, and it's often when it's another guy who's kind of a tough guy. Well, that makes me think of mm-hmm. the Green Berets, mm-hmm. for sure. With John Wayne, yeah. It's actually, besides this film, the only thing I've ever seen mm-hmm. with David Jansen in it. I did not see Harry O. I've never seen The Fugitive. I knew who he was without actually having ever seen his work, and I saw a couple of minutes of the Green Berets. He has the incredibly thankless role in the Green Berets of this lefty journalist oh boy. against... 
John Wayne <laughs> Saving America. <laughs> and they have the... And in, a also, movie, in a movie produced and directed by John Wayne. Absolutely. Yeah. And their height difference is very clearly spelled out. Obviously, nobody said, oh, we'll give you an apple box to put you on in the same stature. <laughs> it looks as if it's a midget talking to a giant, literally. And they have this really tense, very small scene where he's trying to ask some sort of relevant question about should we actually be doing this and it looks like john wayne is going to vomit on him and then shoot him (laughs) in the face and expect us in the audience to go along with it so yeah to go along with the point that you were making about different acting styles being very obvious in certain things it's a thing that we see in all kinds of movies obviously including bad a pictures like green berets but um i think we see more of it in tv there's less time to maybe rehearse. There's less time to kind of get it down. So we do see some of these sort of really spontaneous moments. And uh, this movie has a, a lot of those. And there's a lot of just really kind of just good acting scenes. Like watching Jansen acting with Jodie Foster, I think is really good. I mean, she's obviously, she's so good. This is Jodie Foster as a child. I don't know how old she is, but just as a child. And she's she is like a 30-year-old, you know, seasoned performer doing these scenes, just the way that she acts. And Jansen's character is treating her like an adult, more or less, and speaking to her as an adult. And this, there's less of a... I mean, he's definitely telling her, go inside, but he's more or less sort of addressing her as an equal. Um, and I think that's an, that's an interesting way to sort of play in that scene. I like the three times he sort of smiles in the movie. Those are my favorite parts. Is it specifically in conjunction with Jodie Foster? No. I know I wrote them down in my notes. There are twice in one scene and one in an earlier scene. Okay, we'll get to it then, I guess. The one thing that you made me think of when you were talking about the history of television show and how much you love these, I was super excited when you sent this as a suggestion because I grew up with those. Mm -hmm. I think I'm a little bit older than you, and you might not have actually viewed them when they were on the air. Mm -hmm. But for me, that ABC movie Mystery of the Week, the Columbos, the McMillan and Wife's, Um, McLeod, all that stuff. I watched that as it aired, and we never missed it in my family. Mm -hmm. And so I was super excited to get into this when you sent this as your suggestion. It was so cool when, like, you'd see the guest star, and you'd be like, oh, it's Vincent Price. Or there'd just be some (laughs) guest star that you're super interested in, you know? Yeah, I I love that. I, I, I love just seeing all those actors getting a chance to do their thing. Okay, well, we'll get into the chronology of the film a little bit, starting with this opening scene where he meets Jodie Foster for the first time. There's a nifty little crane shot that sort of signifies to me that this is kind of a cut above the usual TV fare, where it really highlights Thorpe's composition. It really reminded me of the Ipcris file in terms of how many times in the film there's so much stuff going on in the foreground that we are forced to look through and sort of simultaneously examine while we're also processing what actions the characters are undertaking. Also in this scene, we get that first sort of nod to the classic noir sensibilities of this. You get the world-weary voiceover as he begins his run down the beach, talking about the bullet in his back, sort of outlining the struggles that this character has gone through in that television shorthand way letting us know enough about the character that we can be invested in him right away. So he explains his injury a little bit. It sort of sets up his isolation. And it also introduces Jennifer, the titular Jennifer. 
she is clearly a mess, is the first thing I thought of. As she's digging through her bag and she's talking about the things that she has lost and misplaced and... And she is clearly with a much older man, so we have our shorthand with that. What is this young woman doing with this man who says, do you need me to help you talk to Charlie? So we've got our quick setup happening right away. Punctuated with a fatherly kiss that is then reciprocated with a much more passionate kiss. So we have an establishment of their relationship right away. He kisses her on the forehead, she kisses him on the mouth. While this is going on, it's clear that they are being observed from a distance by someone who is taking photographs. We learn through the course of this scene that he also has her keys, which explains the things that have gone missing that she was talking about in her bag. He is clearly obsessed with this woman. We have the first glimpse of our stalker. It moves pretty briskly, and Lars, you mentioned in particular that it's kind of a standard TV thriller plot. A couple of them, actually. It almost feels a little bit sort of grafted. In order to show maybe Harry O's character and his many facets, you could do this without the Jodie Foster plot. It's kind of a B-plot that is not organically really connected to the rest of the plot. I liked it, though, because to me it was one more of those noir touchstones in that it establishes very definitely this knight-errant mm-hmm. characteristic that is part of this whole genre from Philip Marlowe all the way through Travis McGee. Sure. These noble guys with their code. So when he checks on her through the Missing Persons Bureau, we see that he's a bit of a protector. And to me that part of his personality was pretty crucial, especially if we're talking about a series, or in this case a pilot, that is so driven by the personality aspect. We next have what to me is a pretty crucial scene in which Jennifer meets up with Charlie, her soon-to-be, she hopes, ex-husband. And this was pretty fascinating to me because I always want to try to figure out what are people actually thinking and feeling. And I don't know where we put this in the context of 70s TV film. I don't understand what she actually does on her own. I don't know why he wants to stay married to her. (laughs) I don't get the casual insults and violence that happened with no comment from anybody else. And this is in a public place in which this happens. Is this about early feminism trying to break away that's subverted or not? It doesn't apply to any of those things. I don't know. I don't know the answer to all of that stuff. But I don't know what Charlie actually feels. Is it a fairly schematic device that we might expect from a TV movie? Yes. Where we need to set up the conflict and we just kind of get to it with a fairly familiar situation? I'm trying to read too much into it. I want it to be French New Wave, I guess, and it's not necessarily... It's a Marvel comic book in a way where you wouldn't read maybe that much depth into why Doctor Strange does that in this issue of the comic, I think. I do think it's schematic. I mean, this is not the plot, the themes aren't the strength of these kinds of movies for me. It's a sort of, um, I guess every movie's kind of a documentary about the making of itself in a weird kind of way. And for me, like what's interesting is the artifacts that we see in this very commercial product and the and sort of the, some of the sparks that come off of it. But I do think that it was thoughtfully made. It was made with an eye towards composition. But yeah, the word I use for these kinds of plots is mechanical. It's a mechanical plot. It's a schematic plot. And it's a plot that doesn't 
possibly have as much depth as you might hope with some of the characters, maybe particularly some of the female characters. What it serves here is to move us forward in that the photographer, the person who is stalking her, is there. Mm -hmm. And his mission, his knight errant mission, is to release her. It's being generous. Yes. (laughs) Is to release her. He will earn her and love her, but he must get rid of these obstacles in her path. Charlie is the first, and he has to be punished, in the words of the photographer, Roy. I did think one thing about it was remarkable, even if it is just a method to introduce the fact that this happened in public and there are witnesses and the stalker is present. I thought one thing in particular, the length of the scene was pretty remarkable. It was in no hurry. And the length of the conversation and the way that it is edited together, the pace is very patient. It does not get immediately to all these points. For instance, the punctuating slap that happens takes several minutes for that to get to. And if you're talking moving along in TV time, especially with what we're used to now, it seems like it is a very leisurely, lengthy scene to introduce these very standard elements. We mentioned composition earlier, and how that speaks to me is in this scene, and then especially many minutes later in the car wash scene. The photographer is always there. He's always there. And it's, I have unfortunately a little bit of a special connection to this side of the story, but it's actually quite frightening. And there is a lot of tension for me to see this other person whom if you had just turned your head slightly, you would see all this guy's constantly here. Mm -hmm. It really works in this. They do really take their time to set all of these pieces up. It's interesting. When I think there's a sort of, when we begin really watching films actively, there's a, a part of us that maybe when we examine movies, we apply some of the same things that we, some of the same analytical tools we apply to our own dreams, perhaps, or even our own lives. And so sometimes, for me, sort of a shorthand is when I see a character with a camera, it's like, this is sort of the um, surrogate figure of the director, because this is the person who's photographing it, this is the person who's recording it. So when you see a movie like this, it's like, oh, is this, I, I think you can, I think it can be a fruitless pursuit sometimes to try to examine a uh, two-week uh, scheduled, you know, TV movie with the same rigor that you might uh, devote to your dreams or to <laughs> movies that are made with as more conscious art. But it, it is a shorthand that I'm always sort of looking for. I, I haven't followed this through with a, a mind towards actually doing an any kind of real analysis on this, nor do I know if it would reward such analysis. But it is always an interesting thing. But Cole, the point that you make about how leisurely that is, maybe a function of the production of television, this is a thing that I think the best, uh, ex- the best example of this that I found in the History of Television show was the show Dragnet, directed by Jack Webb. Jack Webb uh, directed the show Dragnet, and you've seen Dragnet 67, the mm-hmm. color version of Dragnet. It moves at a lightning pace. Mm-hmm. It's so quickly paced, and he would have his actors just do it breakneck speed. So you get to the end of that, and then, my God, it, he would have 14 minutes in the can, and he's got to have a 22-minute episode. <laughs> so then he would do this thing this called fill time. So at the, whole, at the beginning of each of those episodes, there's a montage of stock footage of Los Angeles, and he would create narration. Um, he would tailor his narration to fill the amount of time that he needed to fill in those episodes. So in almost every show, once you kind of consciously begin watching these TV shows or TV movies, 
is you realize that there is always fill time someplace. There's a scene that where it could be dramatically cut down if necessary. Because when you get towards the end of this movie, there may be pages torn out of the script, or it may just be that it's edited in, in a way that is kind of parallax view and sort of like modern for its time, that I think it does begin to kind of pick up the pace and move pretty fast as it goes on, that it may be that that was a fill time scene. It's true. I am definitely approaching it as if I am looking at something that it was a very specifically yeah. constructed film yeah. that was a unit unto itself rather than a calling card to possibly get our foot in the door to get a television series. It's funny because this is sort of, it is kind of a, uh, we're placing it under an artistic uh, microscope that may not, there may not be no reason for doing this. Maybe a fool's errand you know, <laughs> to do this. And I, but I think it's interesting to do. You know, it, it is interesting to look at things like this with these faculties that we've developed. I've also been watching tons of Kolchak. And so mm-hmm. that <laughs> seeing a guy with a camera all over the place makes me immediately think of Kolchak. Sure. But anyway. And his camera often would break. Flapping around right. with his little recorder. <laughs> and it wouldn't work when the vampires are tennis shoes. Yeah. <laughs> Love that show. I assume what I'm doing is probably trying to balance how often television gets the short shrift, how cinephiles will routinely brush it aside unless it's super convenient for them to uh, use a sort of a feather in their cap like the Decalogue or Berlin Alexanderplatz or something like that. As opposed to Murder, She Wrote that I could talk about at length. Mm -hmm. If we look at movies of the 30s and 40s, let's say... I think there there is real conscious art there sometimes. There'll be like films by Joseph Lewis or Edgar Ulmer, and we can say, oh, this is really, this is an artist creating something. But then sometimes, you know, the films of like William Bodine or whoever, or Gene Yarbrough or somebody, and you look at those films and it's like, that's not conscious art, but there are things about it that I enjoy in a fine art sort of way sometimes. It might be a performance, you know, it might be the music and the atmosphere kind of create this whole sort of thing. It's a way of appreciating it that emulates the way that we appreciate fine art, but it's not exactly. Whereas with some of that stuff, it's really good. And the same thing is true of television. I mean, there are television episodes and television movies that, you know, could really qualify as fine art. This could almost be one. This is 40% there, you know, where because I think Thorpe is doing interesting work. I think the technicians are doing interesting work and the actors are doing interesting work. But it's not fine art. It's a, you know it's a television pilot, and when we begin to break it apart like this, it's not. It was never intended to be broken apart in this kind of way. <laughs> there are certain you know aspects that are sort of shorthand, and it's interesting because like the Erica, the the thing that you broke apart is a kind of shorthand that I would have not broken apart. I wouldn't have taken that and dissected it in the way that you did. But I think that that's a particular kind of perspective that you have that I wouldn't have had, but now may have, you know, a bit more of when I look at a scene like that. Well, coming back to acting for a second, we now get introduced to Clue Gulliger. Mm-hmm. Who's bizarre, let's face it. He also looks bizarre to mm-hmm. me in this specific movie. He doesn't always, I'm not saying he's a bizarre person or an unattractive person. It's the combination of the hair and the glasses together. Which again, I'm saying, is this does this fit into the time period? Was this an active choice on his part to look so odd? I don't know. Well, and also speaking of David Jansen, his sideburns and haircut do a lot of the work as well. I think do a lot of the work in terms of making him look odd. 
in terms of just his performance in oh, general, sure, I th- sure. I feel like he's speaking from his sideburns sure. in the weird top heavy element that he has in his hair. But anyway, it's funny. The first, I introduced that movie Fairy Lance. We screened that as Weird Wednesday years ago, and Tarantino owned the print, and he was there, and so we co-hosted it. But I introduced when I introduced my part of that, I said, yeah, I love Jansen in this. He's kind of like World War II generation, you know, He's and he's on this ship, and he's kind of like the one who's like this whole young crew, and he's the one that kind of... And I went back and I looked it up, and it's like David Jansen was 42 years old when he did this. Yes. Three years younger than I you know? Yeah, I was going to make the same note <laughs> when we get to the end, because the end has this real September song feeling to yeah. it, and I realized I am older than him. He looks 57 years old yeah. in this. And you're older than Clue Gulliger as well right. at the time of this. I certainly don't feel like I'm older than those two characters it's when I, I watch them together. I, and I may be biased, but I also don't think you look as older as, <laughs> as old as these two characters. They look like they're in their 50s to me, and they act crazy. as they it's, are. It, that's, a, that's a whole phenomenon that I, I look back on, and I was like, wow, you know, I'm like Gene Hackman's age and like French Connection or, you know, whatever. It's like, look back, and it's like, just dudes were old then we're so used to practically boys being presented to us as leading men though when i look at dicaprio when i look at someone like ryan gosling these are overgrown adolescents almost i watch in particular i notice it when they're trying to be a tough guy when i'm when they're trying to inhabit a character like lee marvin would have i watch point blank and i think yeah that's a grown-ass man doing grown-ass man things, and these kids cannot hold a candle to it. DiCaprio will inevitably always look to me like a little boy dressed up in his father's clothes. And we have such a dearth of actual adult men, even the ones who are of that age or older, they're not dandies necessarily, but they certainly don't inhabit that gruff, full-bodied, lived-in thing that Jansen in particular in this does. Well, I guess then I think about the female characters, not in this because they're all young or very, very young, but I'm 41. I would be an elderly woman in this. Mm-hmm. I would be someone's grandmother in this story, it seems like. Yeah, there was there was no, no place for me. Un- unless it was a known star, unless it was unless you were Angie Dickinson. I was you know. just going to say Angie or Myrna Dickinson. Lloyd and then doing even a cameo or... 10 years after that, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's that's so true, and it's interesting to. Uh, I read an interview with Andrea Markovici, who plays um, Jennifer in this, and she said, "I could not wait to work. I have so, I had such a crush on Jansen. I could not wait to work with Jansen." And there was a scene where we were supposed to kiss, and it was taken out of the script, and I was so angry. And then she talks about he was the he was just the greatest man in the world. And she was like saying, "This is an interview from like two years ago or something." And then Angie Dickinson said the same thing. She said he was just the handsomest man in Hollywood or something like that. They were lovers, and they went out together for years. That's a very different kind of... Like, Definitely. I wouldn't have thought that, that, that like these beautiful, desirable, sought-after women would be... Hanging on to those this sideburns. Beef jerky-looking yeah, dude. I, <laughs> well, can we talk about Jenny at this point sure, now? Sure, sure. Okay. What's the deal? I don't... <laughs> I don't get it. I understand that this falls into the tradition of I'm beautiful and mysterious and that's all that has to 
take place for everybody to want to bang me. But I, it just seems like we are talking about a void who is also a child at the same time, specifically kept so by her father and this crazy relationship that they have. But why does having no personality or wherewithal or agency or ability to make your own living or make your own choices make you a desirable commodity? Or did I answer my own question? (laughs) I was surprised at how put off by this character that you were a little bit. She didn't strike me that way. She definitely struck me as not the usual philandering wife or put-upon housewife that you see in these detective stories from the 70s. And I really liked her performance in that so many of the things that she did, I did not expect. So it didn't strike me the way it struck you. It wasn't as much of an irritant that it seems like it was to you. It was. It was the... It summed up in, I'm just too complicated tonight. (laughs) Fuck you. No, you're not. It, 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 I guess you're right. Maybe, I guess I have to think back to what else did I watch that week that this was the culmination mm. of this thing. I don't know. I guess I'm just tired of having no essential motivation to who you are except these lists of things of a pathology or things wrong with you. But that being so attractive to another person, yeah. No, thank you. (laughs) Is she presented as being so attractive to others? Or, I mean... Well, she has a stalker. She has a husband who desperately wants her back for his own reasons, not necessarily... Possibly as a... But as a possession. As male pride, uh, yeah, sure. She has another lover. I think you can read some things into the way some of the scenes with her father are acted, especially at the end. Harry wants her very much. She's also a model. I mean, so she's presented to us Mm -hmm. as this desirable thing. Mm -hmm. There are all these, again, all of these shorthand pieces of everybody seems to want her. And she tells us later on, when the stalker is the person who understands you the most and it's very simple, I mean, I think that that says something, which is not a lot. It bothers me that no care whatsoever is put into this and put into why should I want to really root for her or him to want to be with her. I kind of wonder to what extent paper cutout characters like this are fully inhabited by their actors, you know, like... If a different performer had played that role, if possibly that there would have been more depth to the character. Because I I sometimes look at these and I think that, I mean, just from the Gulliger-Jansen scenes, that so much of the characterization, that's a paper cutout detective, police detective, and then so much of the characterization comes in, that's not a major character in the thing, but so much of the characterization comes from that. Sometimes you'll look at a thing like this, you will see a paper cutout character being transfigured and enriched by the performer. It's possibly that a, another performer might have brought more to it. Isabelle Huppert maybe <laughs> would be about the only person I could think of that I would want to watch do that. Yes. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It's set up for me, me specifically, not to want to get involved with this character. Mm-hmm. She, yeah, she's a, she's a little bit of a snooze, I gotta say to me as a character. 
Yes. <laughs> okay. you're, you seem like you're super into her. Well, I don't know that I'd go that far. <laughs> I'm super into the way she looks. I'm, and not just she's not just a normal sort of beauty. She's weird looking. She has she has weird the large features. nose. She looks like a Modigliani in a way. Like if you look at her, she's unusual looking. So I think she's actually kind of like my girlfriend was watching. I was like, is that what models look like? And I was like, no, actually, models didn't really look like that. I mean, Modigliani's models look like that, but yeah. like they did at the really... time. It was Cheryl Teagues or yeah, like yeah. models did not have big super ethnic features like that. That was pretty unusual. So. I, I like seeing someone who looks different, and I think she's beautiful. But I like seeing someone who looks very different like that. <laughs> just, but that's strictly talking just as a camera subject, as a personality, and for what she brings to it, I think she's a little bit of a snooze. And I don't mean to suggest that Andrea Marcovici is bad because I like her in the hand, and she is in the Murder She Wrote episode is she? Yeah. of about ten years after that that I really like her, and she. She's in the stuff. She grows into her <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure, space sure. and herself. Sure. As an older woman, I really like her, but yes, snooze fest. But you're over here, biggest fan ever, right? Sure. Okay. We'll <laughs> we'll just say that that's that's the case. <laughs> Lars, you were talking about earlier, trying to suss out exactly why you like this mm-hmm. so much, and I'm thinking about a scene coming up that I really like that struck me, which is when Harry and Jenny are in the car and she's talking about her life story, basically, in this really, to me, antiquated but not, but still frightening to me as a woman where she's talking about what her mother went through, that her mother was really a person ahead of her time and left her father. And she's talking about she wasn't satisfied anymore to cook and clean and then paying upstairs in the bedroom is the line. And they also talk about this colonel that she's involved with, Colonel John Lockport, and referring to him in her father's words as my partner in adultery. What does all of this say to you, if anything? Or is it just me that likes the way that language works so well? And then in the follow-up scene where they're batting around the word whatever, I think in a way it's sort of they're sort of exercising the newfound ability to talk about these things on television. TV had really come around a bend by this time where you really could, I think probably like sitcoms were first, maybe like All in the Family and so forth. But the fact that they were able to use this kind of adult language, I think it's kind of characterizing, it's kind of characterizing the material as an adult show. It's not a silly sort of, like Hawaii Five O would be sort of a silly show of this, you know, of this nature. They're kind of trying to characterize themselves as more of a nine o'clock show. You know what I mean? In a way, I think with that kind of talk. So, I think it's what makes this interesting is that it's on television. I mean, what makes that kind of dialogue? If you read that in a novel of the time, you'd be like, okay, that feels like, you know, appropriate dialogue for a novel from nineteen seventy what four or whatever. Or if you saw it in a theatrical film, it would not strike you. But it is interesting to hear kind of a sort of seemingly to me sort of progressive idea about when she reflects on her mother's role a seemingly somewhat progressive idea about um, the way that she characterizes it does it seem progressive to you it seems progressive to me and it also even though I am on the fence of is this a relic of the period but then something about it still feels modern and maybe mm-hmm. it's the performance and maybe it's David Jansen and his reactions as well and the way he takes the word whatever and goes around with it 
the thing I think that you are responding to that feels modern is a thing that I am responding to also a little bit later. There's a scene where they're having a conversation in a hotel lobby waiting for a room. And Jenny and Harry are sort of bearing their souls to each other and admitting this attraction. I think there's a timeless quality to just honest, straightforward interaction. I think there's nothing of the relic about that. No matter when that happens, when you strip artifice away and you are talking strictly one human to another and you are being as direct and candid as possible, that exists outside of time. I'm a big anti-nostalgia person. We've talked about this a lot. And when I go back and watch these shows, a number of which I really love, I'm not doing it in a way that I'm trying to experience a time when my happiness was looked after all over again. I'm going back and watching them because they're still good. They are still full of quality performances. They are still well-made. They still tell a story that is interesting 40 years later. So I don't see it as much a relic, as much as kind of a timeless thing. Well, that makes me think of something I noted at the time, which is that everyone in this is at sea to some extent or another. Jenny is. She's completely unmoored. Mm -hmm. Harry is. He's in this major transition, and he's feeling these feelings that he hasn't had in a long time. And then the character of the colonel... This character is astounding to me, and what he has been through, which we learn a little bit later, Jenny tells us that he spends his time just wandering, so he's a suspect in the murder of her ex-husband because he doesn't know where he might have been at the time. And then later we find out the most shocking to me news for 1974, which was that he served in Vietnam and he murdered a substantial number of villagers. And this has gone over in this story. And I'm thinking again about David Jansen and the Green Berets. But it's discussed in a TV film in 1974. Mm -hmm. You can almost kind of picture just like the writer for Howard Robin, who's the writer and showrunner in this, just kind of like having a little list of little topical things that he wants to get to and having like the Milan Massacre kind of like on that topical list and just going, yeah, we'll throw that in over here. So maybe we're trying to read into like, yeah, the deep meaning of it. But it really is possible he's just like, he was just ticking down a list of all the, the kind of sort of topical things he could get in there to sort of dress it up a little bit. Also Oedipal Complex too, I would say, <laughs> to me. Oh, I'm sorry, the reverse Electra, of that. Yeah. yeah, thank you. Now, I know I mentioned the thing about being anti-nostalgia and specifically looking for these things because they are quality rather than just my mental footy pajamas. One of the things that I love about this are all of the nods to the classic noir traditions, the voiceover, the world-weary detective, the knight-errant thing. Another really crucial part of this, I think, is all of the location work and how much geography plays a part. All of the great noir films have it, whether it's New York, whether it's Los Angeles, whether it's Florida, Louisiana. Geographical location is such an important part, and all of these, even Rockford and the beach Mm -hmm. and all of that stuff, are such crucial elements to understanding these characters and what their day-to-day is like, and I really enjoy that aspect of this. It seems they at least took a little bit of care to inject not just personality of character, but the personality of place. 
so much so that it didn't exactly feel like television to me? Did it feel specifically like television to you, or did it somehow transcend that a little bit? You know, I guess I didn't think about it one way or the other because it wouldn't be a debit in its column if it were a television film only. I, I just don't approach it that way. And we've talked a lot about things that I was thinking of that I was really trying to figure out motivations and obsessed with certain scenes and character traits. And even though the work ultimately may not bear out that level of analysis, I really had fun still doing it. And I think that there is so much to unpack in this. Mm-hmm. I mentioned the character of the colonel. I want to talk a little bit more about that. And the scene where he's trying to explain why he would not be the murderer, I don't know where else you would have dialogue like that taking place, especially not for the time that I can think of. And even if I quibble with the presentation of the female character, it's certainly, as you mentioned, not one that's out of line with film noir Mm -hmm. from any period. It feels in certain ways like a 70s theatrical movie, like a clute or something, like in that it has that, it does have that kind of permissive, post-censorship kind of feel to it, where they're eager to feel very sort of urbane and free and liberated in a non-gender sort of sense, but to feel sort of liberated. And I think that that's, it makes it feel like a real movie-flavored TV movie in a weird kind of way, like a theatrical movie-flavored TV movie because it has all these sort of aspects and it, it builds on all of that. And it, it, it has a hybrid sort of feel to it. It has sort of some of the comforting kind of setups and Los Angeles County locations and people in the film that feels very sort of TV movie-ish. And for me, I, I enjoy the nostalgic aspect of it. But what I like is that it does feel like that they're striving and sort of pushing outside of that and trying to push into some of the territory that's reserved for films that people watched in theaters then. I'm thinking again about this Vietnam angle and the scene in which they have found the colonel dead, mm-hmm. apparently by suicide, and he has left this note in cursive saying, I am guilty. And they're talking about what he may have been guilty of if it were not the murder. And Hario talks about maybe it was just a man's conversation with his conscience. Mm -hmm. This is the scene in which he smiles twice, by the way. I think that as being another of these opportunities to elevate this above the rote or the generic. The one thing that really stands out to me that made me pose the question in the first place is when Harry finally meets the stalker when you finally have the hunter and the hunted for television over half the running time has elapsed that happens almost at the hour mark of an hour and 40 minutes nothing on television i think about crime shows now and the terribly banal visual grammar of all these forensic shows and csi shows that are so cookie cutter and move at a very specific pace and have a very specific editing style. And there's no way in a million years they would take almost an hour to put those two characters in the room together. Especially after we've already learned so much about the stalker from his own words Mm -hmm. and presented in a really interesting way, talking to himself, listening to recordings, making recordings. That was terribly prescient, I think, knowing the things that we know now 
it reminded me specifically of Ricardo Lopez. I don't know if you know that case or not. The Bjork stalker. No. And how he filled an 800-page diary and made 22 hours of video diary as well. This was pre-internet era. But how much documentation of his madness there is to be viewed and how much time he took to record all of that. That part of it, I think, was really prescient and really fascinating. The thing I like most about that specific scene is when Harry opens the door and then notices that this man is there and says, who are you? Mm. And that's it. The way you would. Well, I... And then gets fork stabbed. He does. My other favorite line reading among this time is when Harry is trying to make the ballistics call basically over Clue Gulliger's objections, and Clue Gulliger says, what are you doing? (laughs) That's the best. (laughs) This is where I'm hopefully not going to derail things too much, but we've talked about the stalker, and I mentioned earlier that I have, unfortunately, a little bit of connection with this. I'd mentioned many, many episodes ago, just briefly, that I had been stalked when I was about 20 years old. I was contacted via the mail by a mentally ill man whom I had never met and didn't know. And the process lasted for a number of months and he produced a lot of letters and odd drawings and printouts and sent photos. And I learned at that time that he was also stalking other women at the same time. And he actually left things at their homes. And when I watch all of these scenes, the film really does take care to create a level of tension and realism that I don't think you'll see in Mm -hmm. other pieces. And it's treated with a genuine sense of gravity, I think. Mm -hmm. And well before the idea of a stalker was part of the cultural lexicon as well. And it was very troubling for me to watch this. It's it's stayed with me every mm-hmm. day since then, and unfortunately with the terrible national events that mm-hmm. have befallen us, and we have someone in power who is an abuser, it's very difficult to watch these things, and I wonder, I guess, what do I do? What am I supposed to feel? So not really part of the episode, but... It has been increasingly clear to me that I wanted to say something about this. Mm-hmm. And if someone else takes some sort of comfort in hearing that you're not alone. It was just a very bizarre experience, but I, I know what it's like to have someone encroach on your intimacy and your life at a very deep Level And when you see specifically in the film, the thing that affects me most, I think possibly the two of Mm -hmm. you as well, is when he has left this outline on her bed, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's terrifying. Yeah, it's a a really vivid image. And it's, I mean, obviously this is a thing that's going to have all kinds of resonance with you when you see it. But it worked for me, too. I mean, it's just the image and the thought. and, And then the way that it's played and the way that the performers play it and the tempo at which the scene is played, you can't quite process it. It does kind of leave almost sort of a post-traumatic, in a small way, effect on you when you watch it. 
you don't quite have time to perceive what's happened. You just kind of you you see the bed. I can picture that image of it's even from just watching the film. It's a little seared into my head, and you you are left to sort of understand what that means to her. And that's that's a well played piece. You know, it's a well played bit that makes you sort of understand that it does feel like a violation without it being some kind of explicit shot of anything that you see an interpersonal violation happening. I do want to say as well, she makes a decision that she's not going to move from her apartment. And I will say to anyone listening, it's okay if you want to move. If it happens to Mm -hmm. you, no possession or place is worth Mm -hmm. violating your sense of safety. When I chose this film, I had no way of knowing that it was going to resound for you so deeply and and when we talked about it I was glad that this was a thing that you felt like that you wanted to talk about and that you felt safe talking about and uh, I think that it can be seen as kind of a sort of silly TV movie you know it's it's de- definitely has its elements of sort of silliness but when you see the way that it could resound with someone's own experience and you're not alone in this kind of experience it kind of makes you think just how potent even images created in this sort of very sort of commercial way can resound with everyone. So I appreciate you talking about all of that and providing that kind of context for your own experience as it relates to this. And even though it was very difficult for me, I'm still really glad that I watched it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to shy away from those things that are deeply personal or difficult. Mm-hmm. And getting back to the film for a second, in terms of process, I really liked that she is taken seriously. None of this is played for exploitative mm-hmm. purposes, at mm-hmm. least to me. At least that's how I read it. Hario takes her very seriously oh, and sets out to solve this issue. The other thing that really affected me is at the very end, when she is trying to save herself and watching a sane person attempt to reason with an insane person mm-hmm. and what that does to her face and what she's trying to project I thought was played really well. And then the geography of where it's played on a roof over everything and this, at this brink. You know, it's played literally at the edge of this building at this brink. It feels sort of visually, psychologically effective. Well, the thing that was most affecting to me that came out of that entire interaction with those characters was the fact that his analysis of her personality was the most astute of everyone's. He understood her, ironically or not, better than any of the other men in her life. He ultimately says she runs to whoever's near her, which I think is quite true. By her own admission, the scene when they're in the hotel lobby, she specifically says that she pulls people to her and she has a definite need to be liked. But even through all of that, you, she's still your favorite female character ever. You're still super into her. Yes. She surpasses all other women. It's Helen of Troy. Well, I think that brings us to a good spot to wrap everything up. We have addressed all of the significant issues. We have gone way more in depth than we probably needed to with everything. So let's get to our recommendations for further viewing. At this point, we always have something to leave the viewer with that if they liked this, then they can tangentially follow that to something else. Lars, what do you have as your recommendation? Well, I wish I could really recommend the Harry O show, but I can't quite. It's it's pretty good, but it, it becomes very formulaic as these shows do, and it, it sort of breaks down, and it's, you know, some of the episodes 
I've probably seen five or six Harry O's. Some of the episodes are good, some aren't. It is a big love of mine, these personality shows of the 70s. And these are shows where, I think I talked a little bit about it earlier, where you have this actor that you just like a lot and you just want to see this actor doing the stuff that this actor does. So some of the shows there that I can really enjoy, even if they're poorly made or not especially deep or very good shows, Police Woman with Angie Dickinson is, she's so great. And she has this sort of Dean Martin-like quality of just not giving a fuck um, <laughs> where she's in those episodes. For a long time, I just thought that, oh, okay, well, she's doing her best. She's not doing her best. She's really not in those shows. And that becomes sort of like what makes them great. Like if she has to just like really like, you know, take off and run fast down the street, she doesn't. She's just kind of, she's kind of giving it a little, she's, she's pressing the paddle just a little, just as much as she absolutely has to for the show. And that sort of Dean Martin quality is great about that. And she's so, I just love her so much, her personality so much. Obviously Rockford Files, which is James Garner's personality and the way that he does it. And his acting, he's so good. He's such a good actor. And then those shows, more often than not, are really well written. So those are, those are a couple of shows I like a lot. But you also mentioned like Macmillan and Wife. I think Rock Hudson is a really great kind of personality actor. I, I love Rock Hudson. I think he's really good. And I like Susan St. James a lot in that show yeah. as well. So a lot of these sort of 70s personality shows where it's just, you know, these are people who aren't big movie stars anymore. You put them in a TV show and it's like, okay, if they were movie stars, maybe I'd go pay $3, you know, in 1974 money to go see their, show, their movie. But now that they're on TV, I'm going to watch them all the time because I can't get enough. And you get so much start, so much like in Columbus, so much Peter Falk access. You know, you just can't get enough. In, in the movie, you might have three minutes of Peter Falk in a movie, but in Columbo, you get so much Peter Falk. So I, I really like those episodes a lot because these are stars that I can't get enough of. And yet in the shows, you get a lot of them. Mm-hmm. So I, I think spending time, and there's an ambient sort of quality, there's a comforting quality. For me, there's a nostalgic quality because it feels like, it feels like the town I grew up in when I'm in that L.A., you know, that of those places. I didn't grow up in L.A., but I feel like I grew up in that L.A. Yeah. Or that Burbank, maybe. <laughs> but, um, yeah, those are some of my recommendations. And with David Jansen, the, the TV movie Fertilance that takes place on a ship, it's basically like some dumbass brings a bunch of Fertilance <laughs> snakes onto a ship. He's like, why don't I show these to the captain? He's going to flip out. And then, of course, the snakes get loose and they bite, start biting people and they can't figure out what's going on. And then, so it's, and it's this crew that's out for the first time and it's mostly like young Navy guys and they've never been out. But they've got this one guy on it and he's like the master of the boat, which is like the, the old guy who knows how to fix everything and he's been through it all. And it's David Jansen. And so the captain and all the officers are like, well, Mitch, what do we do? He's like, well, first you got to take the air conditioning down to about 52. And, then, and like, so he knows how to do everything and he just sort of takes charge. Can and we it turns watch out he's it a right frog now? man. Oh. So that he, like, he actually has to, like, go outside, go the, outside sub. the sub. And yes. because it gets the sub, it gets stuck on a rock and he has to get out and free it. And there's this great scene where they said, like, they're like, so we said, Diva's out. And Diva's dislodged the sub from the rocks. And they, they say, well, who's going to do it, Mitch? He goes, me. 
<laughs> so that's a little bit of a spoiler of that movie, but hopefully it's enough of it to make you want to see it. Well, Lars just did my favorite thing ever, which is basically get six recommendations into one, <laughs> and now you are never going to be able to rein me in, ever. Okay, well, what about your one this well, time? Well, okay, I did one this time. I got inspired by another California noir and also a story of a girl who doesn't deserve the obsession by the guy. So that led me to Brick Mm. from 2005, directed and written by Ryan Johnson with Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Lucas Haas. It's something I really, really enjoyed when I saw it, and I haven't seen it since then, but I think it's one of those things that I will continue to enjoy. Well... In my family, we went through all of the shows that Lars was talking about. The Macmillan and Wife, the McClouds, the Columbos, like I was saying. My grandmother was the Rockford fan, for instance. She loved James Garner. And I swear to God, if we watched Tank and Murphy's Romance once, we watched it <laughs> 50 million times. Did you guys have an Oki Hall of Fame on your we wall? We goddamn sure like did. Like Catholics would with JFK? <laughs> yeah. I'm assuming Woody James Guthrie. Garner. Okay. Yeah, we practically did. But I was the Columbo fan. That was my favorite, and that is the source of my recommendation. I'm sticking with the TV movie thing, and I am recommending Prescription Murder yeah. from 1968, directed by Richard Irving, starring Peter Falk and Gene Barry, and it was the pilot for Columbo, essentially, much like this was the pilot for Harry O. A psychiatrist uses a patient he is having an affair with to help kill his wife, and Columbo's on the case, which is significant enough to recommend this thing. It is our first real taste of Columbo action, and I could watch those things over and over and over again. I have. I could watch Etude in Black with Cassavetes oh, and Falk playing oh, off of each it. other constantly and never have to watch anything else, practically. Have you seen the Lee Grant one? Yes. Oh, oh sure. That's <laughs> so good. She's incredible. But this time around, Prescription Murder... The original Columbo, 1968. So we've got 19 fabulous recommendations. (laughs) I will boil them down to Brick, Prescription Murder, and every single awesome cop show, detective show from the 70s, plus Fertilance. Right, right. Well, this is typically where we would wrap things up, but it would be ridiculous to have Lars here and not take advantage to pick his brain a little bit more. And also, we brought him here for a particular reason, because right now, Austin Film Society is in the middle of a very important campaign, if Lars would want to quickly tell us about that. Sure, yeah. It's our uh, Best Little Art House in Texas campaign. So the theater that we operate in, formerly known as the Marquesa, we took it over in May, I think. It's been called the AFS Cinema ever since, uh, is vastly in need of uh, the addition of a second screen in order to make it a viable cinema for us to run movies in all the time so we're adding a second screen um, which will allow us to run first run which will allow us to have many more screenings of the films we already have and which will allow us to more or less make it into a viable round-the-clock movie house we've had we had an arrangement with people who ran it before who would do like weddings and uh, you know proms and all kinds of other stuff in the event space and then we would go in three or four times a week and do screenings but um, in order for us to really continue, we we need to, and we we do have a great demand and need to have more screenings in there, but that's sort of what we're doing. So most of that funding is coming from private donors, but we do have a, a crowdfunding campaign. We decided we weren't going to like ask for a whole lot of money in terms of the, the whole cost of the thing, but we needed more in order to help to finish out 
and we want people to be a part of it and be when they go in there we want people to say hey I gave a hundred bucks to that thing you know and, and to it's sort of that's our thing AFS really is our thing there's there aren't a lot of gigantic donors to this thing. I have heard someone say, oh, that's Rick Linklater's tax shelter, which is pretty ridiculous, considering the fact that we're, we spend so much and it's not like any more money comes out. But it is a thing that people who go to AFS and our members at you know 20 bucks a month or whatever are actually supporting. And we write grants and all that kind of stuff too. But that's what the crowdfunding campaign is. I'm being awfully verbose because I haven't eaten. But um, that's <laughs> kind of what the crowdfunding campaign is. It's a way for people to help out. And uh, I think it's running for a few more weeks. So we'd love it if people would pitch in and help. Stuff like this doesn't just happen. It, it happens because people help. We are huge AFS boosters, obviously, I if you listen to the show. So much, yeah. Love members. If you listen to the show at all, you know that we definitely talk about AFS all the time. And it's made a huge difference in my life when I got here. Lars and I have sort of been in, in each other's orbits since or the early 2000s when mm-hmm. I was at Waterloo and he was at the Alamo Draft House. And I can say without fear of contradiction that over the last decade plus, you have been responsible for some of the best times I've ever had. That's great. Thank you. And I cannot say thanks enough. And this campaign and its success, and I'm sure it will be a huge success, ensures that everyone that comes after us is going to get a chance to see 10 times as much as I got to see over the last decade. And I am super excited about being a part of that. I can't wait to see how it turns out, what the new theater looks like, and get to go every day. I'm thrilled. And I'm super glad to see it's going so well. But we will put donation links and everything in the show notes so everybody can see how to get there and help out with that. So, Lars, since you are hungry, I have a two-part question. (laughs) I know why AFS is important to me. You just said why it's important to you. Why do you think this as a concept is important to Austin? And then in other communities, why are film societies like this important? I think we're lucky to have in this community for-profit places like the Alamo Draft House that do really good work. I think they really, really, really do good work. And then we have other um, first-run places that are for-profit that are bringing in films that they see as having you know, profit margins. So like the Arbor will bring in oscilloscopes titles or A24's titles, and Violet Crown will do the same kind of thing. But there's nobody that's really operating outside of a profit margin and is operating as a membership, nonprofit kind of place for these kinds of things. And I think that's the reason that AFS is so important is because we're doing it as much as we can in a pure sort of way to look at the market, look at what it's not getting in terms of like, when, let's say, new prints or new restorations or great films that are part of international film culture and that are sort of landing and part of the zeitgeist at the time. Uh, and we're delivering all of that with a programming viewpoint that I think is um, both responsive and pioneering, sort of, in a way. The programming thing is super interesting to me because you can definitely see people's thumbprint on the thing. I know, at least most of the time, when you've chosen a film, when Holly has chosen a film, when Chale, who is now retired, we miss you, Chale, chose a film. When you're working in conjunction with a team of programmers like that, what is it like to jockey for that position to get your thing on the schedule? Is it as difficult as it seems to possibly line up all of your sensibilities, which are similar, but definitely have their own personality? 
it's not difficult at all. I mean, it's just, I don't have like this sort of competitive thing, like where I feel like I've got to make my mark or I've got to leave my mark here. I've got to have equanimity. I've got to have the same number of titles in the calendar that Holly does. And I don't think she does either. I mean, I think that I definitely, when I do go into a program meeting with Holly, I'm, I want to have like a strong game and I want to have done my homework and like have watched screeners and have things to bring to the table. So, and I think she feels the same way. So there probably is a little bit of sort of competition and jockeying there but in a I think in a sort of healthy sort of way because it's um you know we care yeah you help each other yeah up each other's game ultimately I look at the calendar like the the January February stuff that we're working on now I was kind of looking at it and I was like okay there's 11 things here and I did five of these but I was just kind of counting because like this oh I gotta do these five write-ups I gotta go ahead make the show pages for these five things you know I, I didn't look at it and say oh well damn it yeah you know it was just like okay well she's she saw uh don't call me son you know before i did so i would have also programmed that in this calendar you know had i seen it first so in in a way it's kind of like i don't care i'm not going to get fired you know i do a lot of work so i don't really care if holly programmed or i programmed as long as he gets good stuff that we're putting in our calendar well, the last thing I was thinking about to go out on is, is there a holy grail for you that you have been trying to program and have not been able to put your hands on a print? One thing that you want to show to an audience that you have yet been able to do? I've been doing this for so long that, I mean, I've knocked out a lot of holy grails along the way, but I'd love to do uh, Napoleon. Uh, you know, that would, yeah. be, that would be a great event to be able to do, to do it multiple screens you yeah. know I mean that's 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 probably kind of a bit of a heavy duty holy grail I, I, I don't know if we'll ever actually reach that but um, yeah I, I'd love to do that well that brings us to the end of episode 35 we want to say a very heartfelt thank you to Lars for sitting in on this with us we had a great time and we discussed something that we might have never otherwise talked about which is always interesting and fun so thanks Lars we really appreciate it thank you It was fun. And now we are back at our home base to wrap things up and do a little bit of final housekeeping here. That was one of the most fun shows that we've done so far, don't you think? Absolutely. I really enjoyed doing it, and I want to thank Lars again just for everything that he does. Lars is one of my absolute favorite people to talk to about film or just to talk to, period, because he has two qualities that I think make for a fantastic program. One, he has a true curatorial mindset I think he's always thinking like a lot of us are that grew up making mixtapes and just trying to share things all the time with people that we love or things that we're excited about he really thinks about things in those terms about getting them in front of people and making sure he's not just keeping it to himself which leads to the second quality which is fantastic his true enthusiasm for film it's not just a love of cinema You can have a love of cinema and want to sit in the dark and be alone by yourself. And that is completely different, I feel like, than having a true enthusiasm for cinema, which requires someone on the receiving end that can then reciprocate that enthusiasm. In short, he does a great job. And we're really privileged, I feel like, to have him as the lead programmer at Austin Film Society. Speaking of Austin Film Society, please go pledge to their crowdfunding campaign if you are in any way able to do so. I don't think we can emphasize enough how important we think it is to support culture in your community. So wherever your film society is, whether it's Austin or 
anywhere else that you're listening to us, go out if you take part in these things and if you want to continue to enjoy the fruits of their labor, support them in any way you can. We really think it's very important. You can find the crowdfunding campaign for Austin Film Society at Indiegogo and just search for the best little art house in Texas. It'll take you directly to it. There are a ton of great perks. As of this recording, there are 18 days left and they are about two-thirds of the way to their goal, so they still need a little help and anything that you can do would be appreciated. As for us, if you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Facebook and Instagram. Just search for our name there. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. And I just wanted to take a second to thank the people who gave us feedback since last time or who have shared links to the show. RJ Tugas, who did us the great favor of pointing us in the direction of Over the Garden Wall, which somehow we had missed for two years, which is beautiful and fantastic. Thanks, RJ, for that. Travis Trudell, one of our regular listeners, sent us a message about a friend of his that also listens that sent him a text about how much fun we have on the show. So we're really glad that that comes through because this is one of the most fun things that we do. Grindhouse Dave, as always, thanks for supporting the show. Craig Eastman and the guys at FUDS on Film, we really appreciate it. And, as usual, Jeff Duncanson, thanks a lot. Thanks for listening and telling people about the show. We really appreciate it. We are on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, and Google Play. If you would like to rate or review the show or subscribe to it in any of those places, we would certainly appreciate that. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material and the link to the Indiegogo Austin Film Society campaign drive right now, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 